0: I'm Elizabeth Rushing, and this is Humanity in War, an ICRC podcast on all things humanitarian law and policy. Responsibility for maintaining law and order generally falls to civil authorities such as the police and other law enforcement agencies that are equipped, organized, and trained for such operations. The primary role of most state armed forces, by contrast, is to protect their country against external threats, International Armed Conflict, or IAC, and to deal with internal, non-international armed conflict, or NIAC. However, armed forces may be called upon to support civil authorities where the level of threat, the degree of violence, or the scale of the challenge exceeds the capabilities of traditional law enforcement agencies. In essence, this means to protect life, security, and property, and maintaining the rule of law. Because military forces are often not equipped, organized, or trained for such missions, there is a risk that could cause harm to citizens and unnecessary damage to possessions and property. Today, I'm speaking with two ICRC experts and Colonel Susan Mwanga from the Ugandan People's Defense Forces on how military personnel can reduce this risk, as outlined in the latest ICRC handbook, along with guidance in preparing for and conducting security operations in such a way as to reduce harm to people affected by them. So let's begin our conversation today with Stephen Kilpatrick, who, as a thematic advisor at ICRC's headquarters, is responsible for the organization's approach to urban warfare and the employment of military units in law enforcement operations. Stephen served for more than 30 years in the British Infantry, completing operational tours in Northern Ireland, the Balkans, Africa, and the Middle East. Welcome, Stephen. It's wonderful to see you today.
1: Thank
2: you, Lizzie. It's really good to be here.
0: Thank you, and so let's begin with this handbook. It's been recently published and it's on today's subject. Can you please explain to us what are the challenges that state armed forces face in conducting security operations and why this handbook is important both for them and to reduce the harm that apparently results?
2: Absolutely, uh, Lizzie, and, and you said a lot of it there in the introduction because state armed forces normally prepare for conflict, and so combat and to operate under international humanitarian law but very often we see them tasked to um, support police forces or to deploy on peacekeeping operations where international human rights law is the the, the, um, the prevailing law and now I, I speak from uh, from a bit of experience here in that we used to deploy to Northern Ireland with the line that we've got this, this is fine because we're prepared for combat and we scale down for law enforcement operations. But the truth is that actually operating under human rights law is rather more complex and certainly intellectually for commanders and the soldiers, it's really quite demanding. So what we've tried to do is to bring everything into, into one publication, a handbook for commanders, and to highlight the difference in law, the difference in principles, and to give them some guidance as to how to operate in, in such a situation. And that's really the aim of this handbook. And I say that you know we we want to reduce harm not only to the, the citizens, but also to the military themselves. Mm-hmm. So that's the whole idea behind it.
0: Thank you very much, Stephen. And that's a great opportunity to transition to the why of this topic and to introduce our next guest, Philippe. Philippe Cholu who is currently the police and gendarmerie delegate at the ICRC and having worked in Central Africa and Chad. And before his career at ICRC, he was trained and contracted as infantry combat platoon leader in the French Marines and completed an operational tour later in Bosnia, Kosovo, Ivory Coast and Afghanistan as a career officer. Welcome Philippe. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thanks Lizzie. Good afternoon. Glad to be here.
0: Thank you. Could you please, based on your experience, help our audience understand why the subject of this handbook is so important for humanitarian work? What is the legal framework, specifically international humanitarian law, governing the use of force in law enforcement operations that Stephen touched upon?
3: So on the first aspect, you know, as you may know, humanitarian workers are mostly operating in situations of conflict or violence. And as far as the protection of population is concerned, almost all concerns are relating to the international human rights law and technically to the domestic applicable law. Therefore, it's a real challenge for the armed forces to act lawfully as law enforcement officials. On the legal framework side, there are indeed very few rules from the international humanitarian law specifically dedicated to law enforcement operations. Moreover, the international human rights law and the domestic law always remain applicable in a first way in this specific field. Hence, the importance of an ICRC document to deal with this question is more than welcome.
0: I'd like to bring us back now to Stephen and the focus back to the ICRC's work in the field. When it comes to working with military personnel and reducing such arm, what has our involvement looked like?
2: Um, Well, Lizzie, it's been a a concept for for quite some time in that we have engaged with military forces over time. But I suppose it came to a head during the COVID time, really. And we decided to upgun our involvement and our contribution to military forces in such situations. And we provided a lot of presentations for folk uh, in all sorts of different languages in different parts of the world where military forces were being used more and more in support of law enforcement organizations and I think we realized that there was a need for this. Uh, we produced a handbook on planning alone but I think what this handbook does is it it really focuses more on the actions of the soldiers and I think that's, that's really important. And I would just l- I like to stress again you know it's not only while they're supporting law enforcement agencies but actually in the aftermath of conflict when there is a transition from one legal paradigm to another, then troops arguably need some guidance as to how to to make that transition, both in legal terms and in practical terms. And, of course, on peacekeeping operations, where very often law is human rights law, and very often my colleagues in the field are supporting national battalions deploying on peacekeeping operations. So there's a lot of engagement, and I hope we'll have more with this handbook.
0: That's excellent. And just to be clear, that handbook is already available online, on the eShop, correct? It's on the eShop in English.
2: It'll be on Spanish, I hope, by the end of the week, and then other languages as we manage to, to get them translated.
0: That's excellent. And of course, as you mentioned, our work in countries could not be successful without the collaboration and partnership of military focal points. So to this end, I would like to extend a very warm welcome to our last guest, Lieutenant Colonel Susan Mwanga, who is a Ugandan military officer with almost 18 years of professional experience as a legal officer and trainer of human rights and humanitarian law. Previously, she's worked as a field operations officer and later team leader under the monitoring and verification team in Benshu in South Sudan. It is a real pleasure to have you with us today, Susan.
1: Thank you, Lizzie.
0: Susan, could you please give us an idea of how the guidance in this handbook can be applied to the work of military commanders on the ground? And it would be really great if you could highlight some of your own experience as well.
1: Lizzie, thank you so much for this invitation. I'm privileged to be here and to have been nominated as a, as a participant in this uh, recording. First of all, how this handbook can be of help, for instance, the UPDF. I would think first and foremost, a training, using it as a training guide cannot be overemphasized because that is the way we disseminate information, both to the commanders as well as um, the troops on the ground, and also conducting trainers' course in training schools, as well as training the directors and instructors of these training schools, because, for instance, as a legal training center, we can't reach everyone, but if we bring a few or directing staff from various colleges and training schools of the Uganda Defense Forces to Jinja, then we train them then they'll be able to relay the information in regard to human rights as well as uh, its enforcement. Then also uh, dissemination through different uh, Uganda Post-Defense Forces platforms. For instance, one of them is in our units, we have meetings with our troops. Personally, I have about two to three meetings in a month. So during that, passing on this information is part and parcel of my meetings and agenda. Then also having specific or specialized training, specific gear towards commanders only. You bring in commanders and then train them on enforcement of human rights or the do's and don'ts. For instance, during law enforcement activities, we called upon to train them on what are the human rights requirements. For instance, the issue of torture is not discussable, it's not debatable, and our commanders know that. So we train them on that as well. Then also uh, publications such as military commander's handbooks. LTC, we have that in the pipeline. Possibly we'll be able to work with Yusuf and maybe if they support, then we'll be able to to write some military handbooks in respect of this guide. Then also training the legal officers because they're in the units. They come to the legal training center. We train them on these requirements and then when they're with the commanders because the commanders will consult them the commanders will not call us their teachers so the commanders will consult them on what are the don'ts during peace enforcement as a military officer then once our league officers are aware of the laws and the requirements they'll be able to relay and advise the commanders appropriately basically it's all about training and ensuring that the relevant parties starting from the commanders the troops as well as the advisors are aware of these requirements during law enforcement activities.
0: Thank you very much, Susan. So I'm hearing training, 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 all the way from troops to advisors, to military commanders, dissemination at every possible opportunity. Well noted, thank you. And could you please also share any obstacles that we could envision and how international organizations such as the ICRC could help overcome those obstacles?
1: Thank you. One of the biggest obstacles I see in law enforcement as regards to the military is perception, the public perception. I was doing some research with some, a few civilian individuals when I realized these are some of the questions I'll be able to answer. So I asked some of the questions, like when you see the military coming, when there are riots and you see the military coming, how do you feel? They say they think the military uses excessive force, but... I wouldn't call it excessive force. It's because at the time the military is brought in, it doesn't come at the initial step when, for instance, riots are broken out, unruliness in the public. They always come out at a later stage to support the police and other civil agencies. So when they come in and they're a bit tough, military is not soft, they're a bit tough, but this cannot say that, I cannot say that they violate the law. No, they come when they plan the operation within the legal framework. People are so used to it and they minimize it. But when the military comes in, of course, you see people running away. Of course, there's always the hardliners who will always stay behind, throw stones and all that. So when the military responds, they feel like it's, it's excessive force. The obstacle, perception, not accepting. Because when the military comes in, we should assume that it should start moving away because they know that the situation has escalated beyond mere... You know, mere riots, it's, it's escalating. How would other organizations help intervention? I would think, one, is to continue support and cooperation. Um, because these are civilian uh, organizations, I think they shouldn't be biased, one. They shouldn't be biased against the military activities. Everything is done to stabilize the situation so that peace can prevail and the rule of law. I believe that the agencies should cooperate, continue to cooperate and support the government. I mean, uh, defense forces in enforcement of law during these civil disturbances. And also, I don't know what what other activities, for instance, ICRC may have. Personally, I was sometime back in northern Uganda. This was a situation of war or post-conflict uh, situation. But I would copy something. I would pick an example and leave from there. I would say, because there's a lot of publication on radios I would think that during that time when the situation is hot, because riots don't take place in one day and they cool off. They can take, there's a time I think when we have riots, we had riots like for over a week. So during that time, an organization like ICRC can be very active, even on radio, sensitize the population why they should obey the law because human rights are enforced for their own good. So if, for instance, ICRC or any other organization that human activities Can participate like in media to sensitize the population how they should behave, then I think some of these uh, claims that the military is high handed would go down because the civil population would know that we are supposed to do this, we should not do this. If we see the military coming in, that means we've behaved maybe beyond a certain level where the police cannot handle. So we need to back down and possibly have different avenues to address our problems.
0: Thank you Susan first for the very frank and assessment of the challenges and also for the very concrete suggestions of how ICRC could could help disseminate their messages via radio, etc. It's very you you paint a very clear picture of how, you know, in regards to your first answer, the importance of having these rules integrated into training and dissemination before being deployed into what couldn't be a very chaotic situation will certainly rele- lead to a better chance of a reduction of civilian harm. I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. I'm going to turn back now to uh, Philippe and Steven. We've heard about the ICRC and external military involvement. And so at the end of the day, who needs to hear this message? And what would be the three top takeaways that you would share with them? Who would like to go first?
2: From my point of view, my mate Lizzie, um, certainly military commanders are the, the real target audience, and those from battalion of, of commanders of about 500 to company of 100. And down to platoon of about thirty troops, because they are, they are the people who are effectively responsible for the actions of their troops, and of course, as you say, ICRC folk need to understand what the troops the troops are taking on. I also hope it's appropriate for law enforcement officers themselves, so police officers in many many cases, because I think it's written in a way that it's straightforward. It highlights the the principles, and so I think it's relevant for them. The three top takeaways well uh, firstly it's different the difference of operating from combat to law enforcement operations is so very different and and that's the really important takeaway the second one is it's complex and the, the sense that it's scaling down from combat therefore it's more straightforward that's nonsense it's really difficult for commanders And it's really, really difficult for soldiers under their command to to understand the the rules governing the use of force, the whole business of the escalation of force, the carriage of weapons, all this sort of thing. And that's the the second takeaway. And the final one, I I heard um, Susan talking about the value of training there. And I really emphasize the use of talking through different scenarios and I found this with my soldiers. They didn't want to see what's written down, they want to talk about what it means on the ground where they're confronted by a particular situations. So I would urge commanders to read what's written there and then run scenarios that their soldiers are likely in, to encounter on the ground and then talk about
3: the application of the principles. So there it is for me.
0: Thank you, Stephen. How about you, Philip?
3: So as far as I'm concerned, I think that the, this document is very useful both for police commanders and military ones. Because when military are involved in security operation, of course, the topic is shared between these two kind of forces. You have the question of the joint operations, the handover, the joint intelligence, the limit of that, you know, uh, and the collaborative work and the way the suspects are handing over from the we mm. the police, so uh, it's all sort of a common business, partly a common business. The three takeaways for me, it's uh, first of all to, to keep in mind that globally, military are always more involved in law enforcement. It's a major trend which must be seriously considered now. Uh, the second one is that it's a real challenge for the military because they are fitted and trained for combat, and they must stay like that. Yeah. While mainly acting sometimes as law enforcement officials, and being fully accountable for that, which is a great pressure on them. And the last one, uh, I think that the ICRC MISO handbook is a great job, thanks to Stephen, and is a useful and pragmatic tool, both for ICRC delegates and armed security forces they are working with uh, in a very demanding context.
0: And I'd like to give the last word to Susan, if I may. Susan, do you have any other last points that you would like to share with our audience from your experience?
1: can say is first of all i would like to really thank the iscrc i didn't get that time to say that i'd like to thank the icrc for continued support relentless support to us the legal training center as well as the updf as well as well as the other militaries and i I request that they continue with that support they they should not reduce on it Uh, so in your plans Always know that there's always there's, you shouldn't really reduce that that support I'm telling you because it's really really key. We've been with ICRC since the inception of the legal training center, and they've really been instrumental in disseminating some of this information. For instance, now I'm going a bit of military side, military operation. When we started training uh, with that element of direct participation in hostilities. It is the ICRC that came in. They even gave us some books. So for me, I think ICRC participation and presence is very, very key. I was in Somalia in 2013-14. So I was in a place called Joha, towards the north, northeast of Somalia, and an internal conflict broke out. Already there is that, but then there was also another smaller one between tribes and the police. And so at the end of that day, there was we were our camp, UPDF camp was swamped by over 2,000 internally displaced persons who had nothing completely. We had even uh, pregnant mothers and our troops had to help deliver them. But the first group of support that came, i traveled to Uganda for another training, but I found the first group that came was Actually, I think it was ICRC, but I don't know how they call it that side, but it was ICRC. Already it was there helping, supplying food, uh, providing medical attention. So ICRC is really, really, really key in all situations of, of conflict, whether armed or civil disturbances.
0: Thank you for those words of support. It really means a great deal coming from you. And I want to thank you again for sharing your time and your expertise and your experience with us today. It's really an honor to be able to speak with you. And you, Philippe and Stephen, it's wonderful always to see you and have you in the studio today. Again, that handbook, the MISO handbook is available on the eShop on icrc.org, now in English and soon to be in other languages as well. Thank you very much, and see you next time.
1: Thank you, Lindsey.
0: If you enjoyed this episode of Humanity in War, be sure to check out the ICRC's humanitarian law and policy blog at blogs.icrc.org/law-and-policy, a library of posts, all with audio reads on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify.